Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Darkness by Lord Byron, a poem uh, composed in July 1816, and uh, a very dark poem. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you uh, want to tell us something about the uh, the historical background of this, uh, and then maybe I'll read it, or sure. should we just get right into it? Or Yeah, well, I think the background is fascinating. Um, this is written in the same summer uh, that Frankenstein was written, uh, probably in the same house. Uh, I think it was the uh, Palace Diodati in um, Switzerland. And it was a very strange summer because they had a, almost no sunlight, or at least so little that it was known as the year without a summer. The year before, in uh, Dutch East Indies, now called Indonesia, uh, there was a volcanic eruption. Mount Tambora exploded and threw so much of its uh, top into the sky that the ash and dust from it uh, was covering most of Europe and part of North America for uh, summer. It, I guess, moved around the world and just hung in the air. This is the kind of nuclear winter before there was the term. And, of course, they were not 100% clear at the time what was causing this. A lot of people thought it was the end times. Apparently, there were suicides and uh, uh, sort of general distress. I, I'd like to actually study this even more because I think it it's evoked in the poem, but... The poem also has some personal uh, stuff going on in it. Byron's a kind of a dark guy himself, and uh, I think not all of the imagery can be taken from the nature of the world outside his window. <laughs> uh, some of it can be taken from his own nature. But uh, if you'll read it for I, us. I should point out. Oh, yes. I, I'd like to, but I do want to I, – I need to – I think that you made one small historical error. Um, my understanding is that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in April and May of 1817. So it would have been the spring conceived following of, I think, she this said, summer. Yeah, she, uh, that winter she, she started um, conceiving of it because they had this writing contest. And, right. Uh, she, she apparently was – working on something a lot yeah, bigger so I, than everybody else's. Dr. Polidori wrote a uh, poem, uh, sorry, a short story right. called The Vampire, with a Y. Right, um, which was published in 1819. And and was attributed to Byron, but actually it's more like it's a, it was about Byron than it was. Right. <laughs> uh, right. I'm just saying that, that this, this, this Byron poem was really not actually, I think, uh, coeval, uh, I mean the pun, uh, with Frankenstein, but but they were close and they they knew each other at the same period and they both lived through the the summer without a summer, mm-hmm. so uh, a pall is cast on everything, um, an appalling poem, Darkness by Lord Byron. I had a dream, which was not all a dream, 
the bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day and men forgot their passions and the dread of this their desolation and their hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. And they did live by watchfires and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell were burnt for beacons, cities were consumed, and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour they fell and faded, and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. The brows of men by the expiring light wore an earthly aspect as by fits the flashes fell upon them. Some lay down and hid their eyes and wept, and some did rest their chains upon their clenched hands and smiled, and others hurried to and fro and fed their funeral piles with fuel and looked up with mad disquiet on the dull sky, the pall of a past world, and then again with curses cast them down upon the dust and gnashed their teeth and howled. The wild birds shrieked and terrified did flutter to the ground and flapped their useless wings. The wildest brutes came tame and tremulous and vipers crawled and twined themselves among the multitude, hissing but stingless. They were slain for food and war, which for a moment was no more, did glut himself again. A meal was bought with blood and each sate sullenly apart, gorging himself in gloom. No love was left. All earth was but one thought, and that was death, immediate and inglorious. And the pang of famine fed upon all entrails. Men died, and their bones were tombless as their flesh. The meager by the meager were devoured. Even dogs assailed their masters, all save one, and he was faithful to a course and kept the birds and beasts and famished men at bay till hunger clung them or the dropping dead lured their lank jaws, himself sought out no food, but with a piteous and perpetual moan and a quick desolate cry licking the hand which answered not with a caress, he died. The crowd was famished by degrees, but two of an enormous city did survive and they were enemies. They met beside the dying ember of an altarpiece where had been heaped a mass of holy things for an unholy usage. They raked up and shivering, scraped with their cold skeleton hands the feeble ashes and their feeble breath, blew for a little life and made a flame which was a mockery. And then they lifted up their eyes as it grew lighter and beheld each other's aspects, saw and shrieked and died. Even of their mutual hideousness, they died, unknowing who he was upon whose brow 
famine had written, fiend, the world was void. The populace and the powerful was a lump, seasonless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless, a lump of death, a chaos of hard clay. The rivers, lakes, and ocean all stood still, and nothing stirred within their silent depths. Ships sailorless lay rotting on the sea, and their masts fell down piecemeal as they dropped. They slept on the abyss without a surge. The waves were dead. The tides were in their grave. The moon, their mistress, had expired before the winds were withered in the stagnant air and the clouds perished. Darkness had no heed of aid from them. She was the universe. Kind of dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it occurs to me that this is almost a science fiction poem. It uh, is subverted by the first sentence, the first line. I had a dream which was not a, at not all a dream. So, I guess the first part says it's not a it's not a science fiction story, and then the second part, which was not all a dream, uh, sort of uplifts that idea a bit. And obviously, dark darkness by Lord Byron is is not. Uh, written strictly as a science fiction story, but it, I think it's interesting to look at it that way because we have future uh, stories that very much echo things that are going on in here. <clears throat> Apparently, people wanted to call this a last man story um, as well, which Mary Shelley wrote a story called The Last Man. I think there's a novel called The Last Man, and that is... Yeah, I've read it. 1825. It's a whole genre of sort of end of the world stories where there's a last man and sometimes the last woman, um, including Richard Matheson wrote a famous one called I Am Legend. Um, this one uh, is not technically that because there's two last men, it sounds like. There's a, certainly a last lost dog or last dogs in it that gets a, a prominent spot, but the one that it most reminds me of is actually Nightfall by Isaac Asimov. Do you see why I would think that? Well, I know, of course, in Nightfall, when darkness finally falls once in 2,500 years, um, everyone panics like mad. And in order to maintain light, they burn anything they can and mm -hmm. civilization becomes destroyed. A new cycle starts up again. But in Nightfall... Uh, I, of course, there is this notion that cycle by cycle, people end just a little bit further along on the road to civilization, whereas Byron's darkness does not offer us even that distant hope. Right. Yeah, if you take it as a metaphor, um, it's it's not it, – it, the whole poem's not like a – thinking reincarnation's a thing. <laughs> if you don't take no. it as a metaphor, if you take it as a, sort of a vision of, of a future time, um, it is it is uh, more like a dying earth story, which again is a sort of science fiction fantasy genre. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting to look at it that way because 
it gives us that dark vision that such stories do. Uh, but it does it in a very, very early period. And um, I'm, I'm not sure what Byron's thoughts were with regard to um, to the afterlife, but I don't think there's a lot of evidence for it here. The At the end, he's got holy things being used for unholy purposes. And I'm not sure what that means. If this is all just a vision, a dream, how how do we decode it? Can it be decoded? Well, it, yeah, um, I have my own thoughts about that. I, I would point out um, I made the same um, – I made a mistake when I first read this mm-hmm. um, in my own reading to myself that I think I heard you start to make, but you caught yourself. I had a dream which was not all a dream. Um, in fact, when I first read it, I read to myself, I had a dream which was not at all a dream. Mm. And I think you started to say the same thing um, as if, by golly, this is all true. But Byron is doing something more subtle than that. He's saying, I had a dream. And he doesn't mean, oh, this wonderful future like, you know, Martin Luther King. I had a dream. Um, I had a dream. I had a fancy um, but it wasn't all a dream. Mm-hmm. It was something else, too, which would mean something real. Um, and I think that there's a lot of science in this. Yes. Uh, for example, the bright sun was extinguished. Um, that's not exactly the same as the bright sun slowly burned out. We never find out what extinguished the sun, but part of the reason for the panic is that it all happens fast. Mm -hmm. And whatever it is, it's not just the sun that gets extinguished, um, because, in fact, the moon is gone. The tides are gone by the end of the uh, the end of the poem. And we know that Byron is, at least I think, that Byron is aware of the science of his times, in part because Shelley is his buddy and Shelley is very keen on studying science. But also that very second line proceeds, the bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space. Mm-hmm. Well, wandering stars in in Greek is astartes planetes, mm-hmm. astartes planetes. It's the word from which we get our word planet. I mean, it's the phrase from which we get our word planet, which really originally comes from the Greek for wandering stars. So when he says the stars did wander darkling in eternal space, I think that he is reminding his readers that there are unaccountable actions in the heavens, in the skies, um, and we live on planets. I mean, by now, I mean, uh, uh, Newton was a century earlier than this. Well, not a whole century, 60 years earlier than this. Uh, no, no, actually, a full century ahead of this. Um, Newton's law of gravitation explained why it was that the planets appeared to wander, but they didn't really. They had their own rules as opposed to the uh, the fixed stars in the sky. And Byron's aware of this. So it's not rayless and pathless, but he turns to the icy earth, which swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. And he has the understanding already that the moon has no atmosphere, which was already known by uh, astronomical observation. He's got this. He, he realizes and then turns 
to the psychological impact, the, the urgency for light. When he gets to that passage that you just repeated for us, the, the things that were gathered in churches for unholy purposes, mm-hmm. uh, here, here's my guess, Jesse. Um, Byron does not seem to think that God is doing anything good here. He doesn't even seem to suggest to us that there's a God in the universe. In fact, at the end, darkness, which had been an idea, right? Darkness was was just a, a notion. At the end, darkness, which is an absence of light, has become a presence, mm-hmm. right? The very last line, dark, she was the universe. So this is not, there's no God here, but Byron grew up in a Christian theocracy. You know, the the monarch of England was the head of the Church of England, and Christianity was the cultural framework within which he uh, was educated and within which he wrote. In Christianity, we have a, a stepwise exposition of what it means to break eating taboos, right? Um, Abel kills a sheep in order to make a burnt offering to God, and God likes it. Um, And so, in fact, humanity becomes stronger, right? Um, Cain kills his brother and is protected by God, the sign of Cain of, is put on his forehead so that no man will destroy him. Um, Adam eats, you know, and Eve eat the apple. That's the first step. And God has to kick them out of the garden because lest they put forth their hand and eat also from the tree of life and become as one of us. They could be gods. So, yep, they've got to stay mortal now, but they're more powerful. Every time an eating taboo is broken. The taboo was to protect the power of the whatever issued the taboo. And in the course of Christianity, every time it gets broken, the breaker becomes more powerful. The last most powerful eating taboo is cannibalism. And Jesus says, this is my body, eat of it. Hoc est corpus. This is my body. The communion is the eating of the body of Jesus, and it should restore us to life, to eternal life that Adam lost all along. I think what Byron is saying here is that in the church, holy things are gathered for unholy purposes. Cannibalism does not make us better. Cannibalism makes us worse. Yeah. And I believe that that's part of a subtle but nonetheless pervasive critique of the uh, the mythology that Western culture offers us to think that we can somehow be better than what nature has allowed us to do. And one of the reasons for having the sun be extinguished is so that Byron can show us that if we can't depend upon nature, we can't depend upon anything. We are going to destroy each other. In fact, it's not God that keeps us safe from each other. It's having an accommodation with nature. 
And when nature goes haywire, we are doomed. And then darkness is the universe. I, uh, I want to point to something that seems to supplement what you're saying. The uh, Cain and Abel um, uh, story ends with God marking Cain. Um, I'm not sure if it's in in the where is the mark placed upon him? Is it on his brow? I always thought it was on his forehead. Yeah, it might be. Um, and in that case, um, that's what we have here as well. Um, when when the light of the last holy things are burned, the image that is written upon their brow, Famine had written fiend, capital F, yeah. right? So that they, it's almost like you see the light shine upon their face, and the word F I E N D is written there. But it may be just the visage itself, right? What do you look like when you become this, this monster, right. this horror? Um, it's it's a pretty damn dark story. The only uplifting it part is. of it, to me, is the the part of the noble dog, the the single dog that licks the hand of the of its master, um, and is the master's dead, can't respond and give a pet back. Yeah. It's it's the only sort of halfway redeeming image in the in the whole piteous story, and it this is uh. A very like I think this has got to be the darkest version of all of these tales. Um, we have done on this podcast another story that has a very similar premise, "A Pale of Air" by Fritz Leiber, which obviously yeah. is incredibly dark as well, um, given that the sun has been removed from or the Earth has been removed from the orbit of the sun and is now orbiting a dark star that gives little light um, and. Pretty much everybody's dead, but through the genius of science and uh, human family, we uh, are given a kind of redemption and hope uh, that we can we can go on and have a real life somehow anyways. And that is not what we have here. At the end, there is only darkness. It is. Indeed. I, I would. I'm sorry. Excuse me. No, it's, it's just it, it is the end. And it, it's. It's um there is no other place to go to. It is. I I agree. And I think that getting once we realize that then when we reread it we can see other ways of understanding the the things that we're told about. I mean um for example uh the word fiend if we understand that that to some extent there's a thread running through this story that has to do with um, invalidating our mythologies we realize that fiend isn't just the opposite of friend it's also a devil right i mean we use that word uh, for for other things we've become the devils right because famine has driven us to that we don't need um a hell with evil creatures in it but we have it here mm -hmm. we are potentially that all along and that dog who licks the hand of his dead master 
At first, one may look at this as a an emblem of of loyalty and kindness. And he's unusual. All the other dogs have turned and eaten corpses, but not this one. This one is clinging to the hand of his dead master. And uh, what good does it do him? Nothing. He dies and gets demolished also. So, you know, going back to the, the sort of biblical thread here, well, you know, there's a story about a dead master, you know, and he gets resurrected and gives us all <laughs> eternal life. So let's... Right. Let's let's keep, you know, being true to him. Well, to the extent that that is what's being mirrored here, Byron is creating a poem in which being true to that dead master gets you exactly nothing. It gets you exactly nothing. Darkness is the universe. If nature does not provide light, then there is no light. And so the very beginning, I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space. Um, I think the part of it that's not a dream is that without the sun, without heat, warmth, light, without the things that human beings rely upon for civilization, there would be no civilization. We would destroy ourselves. Uh, but the particular event in which Byron narrates that outcome is one that has destroyed not just the sun, but somehow the very possibility of tidal drag so that we no longer have tides, we no longer have the moon, we no longer have any motion, even celestial, that human beings can apprehend. Um, I was there's, thinking, oh, sorry, continue. No, I was just going to say, there's, there is something that is so compressed here. That, you know, it's sort of like like the begats in the Bible. Mm. You know, you, you, you run off generations, but if you stop and think about them, you wonder about the lives and the, each birth and growth and maturation and and. and procreation and then and, and death i mean that's what's going on here uh, this is nature poetry of nature snuffed out mm. and it makes us be part of that nature it's really quite terrible i i i, I think the look at the animals is, is interesting just like the look at the at the physical objects the ships in the harbor um yes you know they they have no wind because the sun is gone the masts fall and rot and there's none to use them there's no trade not everything ends if the sun goes out but it's not just the uh, uh the the dogs that have a bad time the birds and flap their useless wings the wildest brutes came tame and tremulous right they flutter to the ground they the birds it's like they can't go anywhere. There's nowhere to go. They can't see. And and yet that's not all because the vipers crawled and twined themselves among the multitude. Now, that makes me think the multitude of the people, right? The, the, the vipers are coming to humans for heat to worm themselves. I, I, I read it that way too. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and yet they don't hissing, but stingless. They were slain for food. Um, why are they stingless? Uh, it's like almost they've been 
turned off. You know that that there's no. I'm not going to kill you. That's not what we're do. What we're doing now. We're going to maximize your horror. That's what we're going to do. And and thinking about the uh, the dead master, um, and the and the dog that eventually itself dies of 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 famine, even though it could have eaten its master, the one noble dog. This actually didn't remind me of Jesus as much as it reminded me of Argos, the the dog of of um, Odysseus. Who ab- Jason. Uh, well, it's in the Odyssey. The in the Odyssey, um, uh, we, we get a, t- a tiny little story in the final part where uh, Odysseus returns to the island and n- none recognize him except for his faithful dog, uh, his name yes. is Argos, and he's been waiting for twenty years. So there's a very old dog, and he's covered in fleas and he's on a pile of dung sitting atop a pile of dung and as he sees and recognizes his master his head lifts up his eyes perk and then he finally he dies himself and the story continues so that even the master doesn't you know odysseus who has come back for his wife and his son right um, he doesn't even see that his his loyal dog is there and that is it has died. It it moves him not right. Um, this uh, bringing the animals into it and making the 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 loyalty of the animal. This is something we see in another kind of science fiction story um, where you know all the humans die or disappear and it's the dogs that inherit the earth. Right. <laughs> we've got we've got a ton of fascinating connections here to other kinds of science fiction that all seem to be sort of it it comes to the sort of lovecraftian uh realization that you know if if you really understand the size of the universe and understand the physics of what's going on in the vast distances and the fact that the sun had a had a birth and therefore will die then you have to you have to come to some pretty dark conclusions. And if you don't, you're in denial. And so I think that that's why that that first line, I had a dream, which was not all a dream. Obviously, there's some things in here that uh, are, I mean, the, the part of the volcanoes where people, uh, they live by the watch fires of the, of the, of the throne, the thrones being burned, right? The palaces of crown kings, and then there's the volcanoes, the thing that actually caused this this inspiration. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes, um, not just because the fire is continuing and there's light, but because it it's almost like this is hell, right? This is the real hell. And that's the it's everything's backwards. The vipers are now are now not a threat. They're they're peaceful. It's a very very dark poem. It it sounds like it would be a throwback to Eden, but in fact, in a throwback to Eden, one would have immortality. Here we have nothing but mortality. I guess there is. Nonetheless, for us who are living, always more to say. And remember, 
You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.